Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is part two of our unearthed episode for the first three months of 2022, where we talk about things that have been literally and figuratively unearthed. This time around, we have some edibles and potables. We have some shipwrecks, got some other stuff. We're going to start off with that catch-all category of potpourri for some things that I found and thought were interesting, but did not have success categorizing <laughs> into a unified whole. So the first of those, in March, Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, apologized on behalf of the government for the nation's witch hunts that took place between the 16th and 18th centuries. Nearly 4,000 people were accused of witchcraft in Scotland during those centuries, the vast majority of them women. Many of the accused were tortured, and about two-thirds of them were executed. In a statement before Parliament, Sturgeon said in part, quote, as First Minister on behalf of the Scottish government, I am choosing to acknowledge that egregious historic injustice and extend a formal posthumous apology to all those accused, convicted, vilified, or executed under the Witchcraft Act of 1563. Next up, archaeologists in Switzerland believe they have found the remains of one of the last Roman gladiator arenas ever constructed. This find came during construction of a new boathouse. This arena was shaped like an oval and located in an abandoned quarry, and the team believes it was built in the 4th century. In addition to its relative recency, this would have been on the very outskirts of the Roman Empire. 
Finds at the site include two large gates, the stadium's walls, which have evidence of being plastered, and evidence of wooden grandstands. In another Roman find, there are flat-bottomed conical pots that were widely used in the Roman Empire, and there's been some debate about what they were used for. According to research published in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports, at least some of them were used as chamber pots, which they determined thanks to the presence of whipworm eggs and residues that were on the insides of the pots. Uh, If you go look this up, I will just say I found the way they described those residues particularly gross. (laughs) Uh, We have talked about evidence of intestinal parasites in various contexts before on Unearthed, but this is the first time that they have been found inside of these Roman ceramic vessels. In 1925, anthropologist Alfred Krober wrote that the Moekma Ohlone tribe was, quote, extinct for all practical purposes, a conclusion that the tribe's members stridently resisted. The Moekma Ohlone Tribal Council eventually embarked on a collaborative research project to trace living members' genetic links to their ancestors in the San Francisco Bay Area. This followed the announcement of a proposed educational facility that was likely to uncover human remains belonging to Mwekma Ohlone ancestors. The resulting study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it found clear genetic connections between eight present-day tribal members and 12 people from two settlements who lived between the years 490 BCE and 1345 CE. So this confirms the Mwekma Ohlone tribe's ancestral connections to what's now the San Francisco Bay Area, and it challenges conclusions from other archaeological research that used language patterns and artifacts to suggest that they arrived in the area much more recently, more like between the years 500 and 1000. Um, Mwekma Ohlone family histories and government and church records had also contradicted that conclusion that they were more recent in the area. In addition to this research originally being initiated by the tribal community, including approving the study designed for the genomics research, tribal members were actively involved in the fieldwork that was part of this project, including being the primary excavators anytime burial sites were being uncovered. In the words of study co-author Brian Bird, quote, this was a rare, collaborative, community-engaged research project with tribal members and archaeologists working side-by-side for more than a year of fieldwork, resulting in a tremendous repatriation of knowledge to the descendant community. We're going to talk about this whole idea a little bit more in the Behind the Scenes on Friday. Uh, For now, though, we will move on to some edibles and potables, which are always one of my favorite categories. Uh, According to research published in the journal Antiquity, some hollow rods that were believed to be poles for a canopy or maybe some kind of scepter might really be 5,000-year-old drinking straws. This conclusion is thanks to the discovery of barley residue on the inside of one of the straws. There are eight of these. They are pretty long, about a meter long each, and some of them are decorated with bull figurines. So the idea is that these very long straws were probably used to drink beer from communal bowls. I feel like every tiki bar that has done, like, the big, (laughs) large tureen of cocktail with big straws into it was uh, just reenacting this without knowing it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Moving on, we know that people have been using the pigment from wild saffron for at least 50,000 years. It appears in cave paintings in what's now Iraq. Saffron is also mentioned in Sumerian, Assyrian, and Babylonian texts. But unlike wild saffron, domesticated saffron can't reproduce on its own. It requires human help to separate out its underground corms, which are like little plant bulbs. So there's been some questions. When was saffron both a pigment and a spice? When was that domesticated? And according to research published in the journal Frontiers in Plant Science, Saffron was first domesticated much more recently, about 1,700 years ago in Greece. Researchers came to this conclusion by looking at Minoan artwork that seems to depict domesticated saffron as well as doing research into the plant's genome. Researchers have found evidence that broom corn millet was grown in Mesopotamia much earlier than was previously thought. Millet is typically a summer crop, but it also needs some rainfall to thrive, and Mesopotamia's summers were typically very dry. So millet was believed to have been introduced only after large-scale irrigation systems were built in the mid-first millennium BCE. But a team from Rutgers University has looked at microscopic plant remains from an archaeological site called Kanamasi, and they found evidence of millet dating back to before those irrigation systems were built. So this suggests that local people might have worked out their own methods for doing irrigation and sustaining summer crops rather than just following the lead of the more massive irrigation projects. It seems like we have had a whole lot of wineries on the last few installments of Unearthed, but this time, archaeologists working ahead of a road project in Bedfordshire, England, have found evidence of a malting oven and charred spelt grains that have been allowed to germinate, which were likely used in the brewing of beer. This oven was found on the site of a farmstead that's believed to have been used before and during the Roman era. What they haven't found, at least not yet, is a facility which would have been needed to brew that malted grain into beer. Yeah, it's probably what the grain was used for, but in terms of where they were doing that, not sure yet. Moving on, back in 1906, the Italian archaeological mission found the tomb of Ka, an architect, and his wife Merit, that was near Luxor, And at the time, it was pretty common for archaeologists and researchers to open jars and other vessels that they found, a little bit like the unwrapping of the mummies that we talked about in part one. The team, in this case, though, kept the various amphorae and other containers that they found in this tomb mostly sealed up, and a lot of them are still sealed up. So to find out what they contained, researchers from the University of Pisa have used their smell. I love this. Me too. They did this by placing sealed jars and open vessels in sealed plastic bags. After a few days, they used a mass spectrometer to identify the volatile molecules that had collected in the bags. They were able to identify some compounds from two-thirds of the objects they tried to test. They found molecules that were associated with beeswax, dried fish, and fruit. And our last food find before we take a quick break. Archaeological work in San Francisco has unearthed evidence that people were eating imported Atlantic cod during the gold rush in the 1850s. They came to this conclusion after studying 18 cod bones and figuring out whether those fish had been caught from the waters around San Francisco or from somewhere else. Five of the bones were from Atlantic cod. They were probably salted and dried before being transported across North America, 
This was not entirely surprising. There are invoices and newspapers from the time that mention Atlantic cod, but this is some physical evidence of the fish itself. This find came about during archaeological work that was working alongside construction, something that comes up all the time on Unearthed. But we've never really talked about what that work is like. Kale Bruner, who worked at the site, described it this way, quote, Compliance work is challenging in a lot of ways because you don't really get a lot of control over the excavations. And this case was kind of an extreme example of that. The fieldwork conditions were overwhelming, and I was the only archaeologist on site. They were fortunately only excavating dirt in one location at a time, so I only had one piece of machinery to be watching, but we were hitting archaeologically significant material constantly. It was two years, essentially, of monitoring that kind of activity and documenting as rapidly as possible everything that was being uncovered. We're going to take a quick sponsor break before we get to some books and letters. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper... You're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. 
It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like the edibles and potables, the books and letters are one of the favorite categories of mine, and we have a few of those this time around. First, the University of Leicester's Dickens Code Project has been trying to decipher various materials that Charles Dickens either wrote or dictated in a shorthand system based on brachigraphy. This system combines abbreviations and symbols, and it can be pretty complex on its own. To make things more complex, Dickens also changed the system as he was using it. Uh, In 2021, the University of Leicester offered a prize of 300 British pounds to anybody who could decipher a one-page letter that was in the collection of the Morgan Library. More than 1,000 people entered this contest, and the winner was technical support specialist Shane Baggs, who deciphered more symbols than any other entrant. The second-place winner was cognitive science student Ken Cox. The letter in question pertains to a dispute between Dickens and the Times of London, which had rejected an advertisement that Dickens had wanted to run. Yeah, this was a... Even though they named two winners, it was a collaborative work in a lot of ways. Like, there were Reddit communities where people talked about with this with each other. The university also did a lot of deciphering workshops online for people who were interested in that kind of stuff. This project is still ongoing. There's still more stuff that Dickens wrote that's not decoded. There are still decoding challenges and resources available. Uh, This prize itself was, I think, a one-time thing, though. Marcello Bolognari at the State Archive of Venice has found a will that suggests that Marco Polo had a previously unknown daughter, Agnese. Agnese's Will was written on July 7, 1319, and asked her father, Marco, to deliver it to the priest notary Pietro Pagliano. She named her father, her husband Nicoletto, and another relative named Stefano as executors. We really do not know much about Agnese, other than she's a previously unknown daughter of Marco Polo. It is likely, though, that she was dying when she wrote her will. In addition to those executors that she mentioned, she also mentions three children, Barbarella, Papon, and Franceschino. Uh, she also mentions the children's tutor and their grandmother and the family maid. 
Agnese would have been born before Marco Polo's marriage to Donata Bador, with whom he had three known daughters. But we don't know whether Agnese was born out of wedlock or whether Marco had been married to her mother and perhaps was widowed. Many question marks. Yeah, but pretty cool that now we know about a daughter that we didn't know about before. Uh, For our last find in books and letters, ecologists have developed models that help them estimate how many rare species have been lost based on the survival rates of animals that are still here. And an international team of researchers has used that same basic idea to try to figure out how many medieval manuscripts have survived until today. Their conclusion was that more than 90% of medieval European manuscripts containing narrative literature has been lost. This actually lines up with some earlier estimates that used other methods to approach the same question. This project also involved estimating how many works had been written in six languages. Dutch, French, Icelandic, Irish, English, and German. And according to their estimates, works in some languages may have fared better than in others. They estimated that less than 39% of works in English have survived, but 77% and 81% of Icelandic and Irish works did, respectively. One possible reason is that there tended to be more copies of each work in both Iceland and Ireland, meaning that the work itself was more likely to survive as the manuscripts containing it were destroyed or lost, or their paper was recycled for some other purpose. Possible reasons for the lower survival rates of works in English, especially works of fiction in English, uh, included the dissolution of the monasteries and a perception that works in English weren't as notable or high quality as works in other languages. The Norman conquest may have played a role as well because when the team looked at works of fiction that were written in Norman French alongside works that were written in English, the survival numbers were more comparable to what they saw in some other languages. This was published in the journal Science under the title Forgotten Books, The Application of Unseen Species Models to the Survival of Culture. Moving on to art and architecture, archaeologists in Croatia who have been working at a hotel construction site have found a partial statue believed to depict the goddess Venus, It's about 1,800 years old and made of marble, and the part that has survived, or at least that they found at this point, uh, stretches from about the knees to just below the ribs. I found pictures of this a little creepy to look at. (laughs) Uh, When it was intact, this was probably about two meters tall, and it's believed that it used to stand on a pedestal in a villa, fragments of what may have been the statue's base were found nearby, and this seems to have been a pretty wealthy person's villa. Other finds at the site include a sewage canal, a mosaic-covered wall, pottery, luxury tableware, and marble flooring. In other Venus news, although this is a different type of Venus, researchers may have figured out the origin of an 11-centimeter figurine of a woman known as the Willendorf Venus, named after Willendorf, Austria, where it was found in 1908. This figurine is about 30,000 years old, and it is made from oolite, which isn't found in the area. After making high-resolution tomographic images of the figurine and using microcomputed tomography to look at its interior, they concluded that it likely came from northern Italy, although there's similar material that doesn't quite match up as well in parts of Ukraine. 
Their findings suggest that the Venus, or the material it was carved from, traveled either around or over the Alps to get from Italy to Austria, demonstrating just how mobile people could be 30,000 years ago. There's a whole category of uh, figurines from this time period that usually are depictions of women that are grouped together as Venuses. Uh, Next up. Art historian Christopher Wright bought a painting in London for 65 pounds in 1970, believing that it was a copy of a painting by Flemish Baroque artist Antoon van Dyck. New research, though, has suggested that it might actually be the real thing and not a copy. The work in question is a portrait of Isabella Clara Eugenia, Archduchess of Austria, and a friend who saw it suggested that Wright might want to have it uh, evaluated after noticing that the hands in the painting had been painted particularly well. That was something that suggested that it might really be Van Dyck's own work and not a copy. This identification has come after a three-year study and restoration of the artwork, but it's still considered to be tentative. It's not confirmed yet. For our last find, archaeologists have found what may be the oldest ochre workshop in East Asia. This site dates back about 40,000 years, and it includes evidence of a fire, nearly 400 stone artifacts, and chunks of ochre. Although we've usually talked about ochre in connection with rock paintings and other artwork, it's not entirely clear what this particular ochre may have been used for. Paleolithic peoples may have also used it as a sunscreen or an insect repellent or even as an ingredient in making adhesives. Now, moving on, we have four different finds that were all made from stone. First, a team from the University of Aberdeen has found a large stone covered in Pictish symbols. This is one of about 200 known Pictish symbol stones that probably dates back to the 5th or 6th century. A lot of the stones that have been unearthed so far were unearthed accidentally, like a farmer uncovered it while plowing, which means that the area around the stone has usually been pretty heavily disturbed by the time archaeologists have gotten there. In this case, though, they found this stone as part of an organized study that started after non-invasive imaging suggested that there might be evidence of a settlement in this area. There's been a lot more for archaeologists to be able to go through in that earth that hasn't been disturbed yet. So this slab now has been taken to a conservation lab in Edinburgh for further study. Back in 2015, archaeologists found a round carved stone in East Yorkshire, but the find wasn't announced until February of this year. This was carved from chalk, and it's roughly shaped like a drum. It resembles three other similar carvings known as the Folkton drums, which were found about 15 miles away back in 1889. So this carving is about 5,000 years old. It was found alongside the remains of three children, and there are three small holes carved into the top of the this thing that they're calling a drum. Researchers believe those three holes may somehow represent the three children that this was apparently buried with. Research into the children's remains is still ongoing, including determining whether they are related to one another. A lot of pictures of this include a bone pin that was found in the same place that looks almost like a drumstick. It's not a drumstick. If you <laughs> if you look at pictures, it makes it look like this was literally a drum that people played like an instrument. It's, it's a carved rock that is shaped a lot like a snare drum. 
In other news, researchers have documented 65 large sandstone jars across four sites in Assam, India. These jars are probably at least 2,400 years old, and they resemble jars that have been found in Laos and Indonesia. The region of Laos, known as the Plain of Jars, has thousands of them. Systematic research into these jars in India started in about 2014, and research published in March documents a survey that was done in 2020. Although researchers worked with local communities to find these jars, the people who are living in the area today are not the same ethnic group as the people who would have made these jars more than 2,000 years ago. So there's a lot that is still unknown about them. Local people have described finding jars that still contained what looked like cremated remains, so it's possible that they had a funerary purpose. And our last stone item before we take a break. Archaeologists in Oman have found a 4,000-year-old stone board game. The slab is carved into a grid, and it has holes that people may have used to keep their game pieces in. Yeah, that's like the most logical (laughs) use for the little holes. Uh, We're going to take a quick sponsor break and then be back with some shipwrecks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper... You're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. 
It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. going to close out this installment of Unearthed with a whole bunch of shipwrecks that were not Shackleton's endurance because we talked about that already. First, in February, the Australian National Maritime Museum announced that a shipwreck at underwater archaeological site RI-2394 is His Majesty's Bark Endeavor, which Captain James Cook took to the South Pacific in the 18th century. After Cook's voyage, the ship was sold, and later on, the British Royal Navy used it to transport Hessian mercenaries during the American Revolution. It was renamed the Lord Sandwich, and it later became a prison ship, and in 1778, the British scuttled it and 12 other ships in an attempt to block Newport Harbor in Rhode Island. Various divers and underwater archaeologists have thought this wreck was the endeavor for years. But when the Australian National Maritime Museum made its announcement, researchers from the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project immediately expressed doubts. Researcher Kathy Abbas, who works with the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project, also said the Australian Museum's announcement was a breach of the contract it had in place with the Archaeology Project. Meanwhile, a researcher with the museum said that contract had expired back in November. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, news articles about this report and then also a lot of news articles about the argument about the report. Uh, It is not the first time that doubts have been raised about wreckage that had been identified as coming from the Endeavor, though. Part of a ship's stern post that was sent to space aboard the space shuttle Endeavor later turned out to definitely be from a totally different ship. Whoops. (laughs) The face (laughs) that you made was amazing. Um, This dispute seems to be unresolved as of when we're recording this. This is also an example of how some wrecks can be challenging to identify. Shackleton's Endurance had the name Endurance clearly visible, which made it pretty obvious. But only about 15% of this wreck is still there, so the identification is based on the location and size of the wreck, a comparison of surviving pieces to records of the Endeavor, and wood samples that suggest that it was built in Europe, not the United States. Moving on, marine archaeologists working off the western coast of Sweden have found the previously unknown wreckage of a medieval cog 
That is a style of ship that was common after about the 12th century. This is believed to be one of the oldest cogs found so far in Europe. According to analysis of the tree rings and the lumber, it was made from oaks that were cut down between 1233 and 1240. Seams in between the ship's planks were sealed with moss, which was pretty typical for this type of vessel. There's also some evidence that there was a fire aboard. It's not clear what the cause of the fire was, but it may have been a factor in why this boat sank. Researchers have been studying sheep, pig, and cow bones from shipwrecks off the coast of Western Australia to try to learn more about how they've changed through long-term exposure to the sea. They've studied bones from four underwater archaeological sites, one being the wreck of the Batavia, which we have talked about on the show before. The bones the team has been studying have been submerged in the water or buried in sediment for more than 100 years, and it's hoped that what they've learned can be applied to the study of bones from other wrecks in the future. So far, they've identified a set of what they've called geochemical fingerprints that help trace the changes that happen to skeletal remains over time. They've also studied how single-celled organisms dissolve the spaces inside submerged bones, and they've analyzed how bones can be eroded by things like bacteria and barnacles. According to research published in the Journal of Archaeological Science reports, timbers from a shipwreck that was unearthed in a storm in 1863 are probably from a ship known as the Sparrowhawk, which was driven aground during a storm in 1626. The Sparrowhawk has been believed to be the source of these timbers for quite some time, based on where on Cape Cod the wreckage was found and how historical documents describe the location of the wreck. But this is the most conclusive evidence so far to back that identification up. Tree ring data and radiocarbon dating suggest that the timbers used to build the boat were cut down in southern England between 1556 and 1646. The timbers are currently in storage at Pilgrim Hall Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts. A recovery operation is ongoing in Majorca at a site known as the Se Fontenelle Wreck. This ship sank about 1,700 years ago, probably while it was anchored in the Bay of Palma, and it was carrying a load of amphorae that were filled with things like olive oil and wine and fermented fish sauce, And then it was mostly buried in the sand until about three years ago when it emerged during a storm. Since this wreck was covered up for most of that time, most of the cargo has remained untouched and is in pretty good condition. The inscriptions are still visible on some of the jars. In March, it was reported that divers had brought up about 300 amphorae and other objects, including a leather shoe, an oil lamp, a cooking pot, and one of only a handful of Roman carpenter's drills that has been found in the region. A team is at work trying to figure out how to recover the wreck itself, which is only about 50 meters off of a popular beach. Wreckage of a 207-year-old whaling ship called the Industry has been found in the Gulf of Mexico. The ship sank in a storm on May 26, 1836. This is the only whaling vessel to have been lost in the Gulf of Mexico between the 1780s and the 1870s. Yeah, a lot of vessels were lost during those years, but not necessarily in this spot. And according to news reporting from the time, uh, another whaling vessel rescued the crew, who later returned to Westport, Massachusetts. And if that town name sounds familiar... It may be because that was the home of previous podcast subject Paul Cuffey, 
Cuffy's son, William, was a navigator on the industry, and his son-in-law, Pardon Cook, was one of the ship's officers. We got several notes from listeners about this one. Archaeologists in Iraq have excavated a 4,000-year-old boat near the ancient city of Uruk. The boat was made from plant material like wood, palm leaves, or reeds, which is then totally covered in bitumen. The plant material is gone now. Only its imprints are left behind in the bitumen, but the bitumen covering is still there. I think this is a cool way to make a boat. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I like it. This boat is about 7 meters long and 1.4 meters wide, and part of it had been exposed through erosion. Nearby traffic was making that erosion worse, and that's what led to the decision to excavate and preserve the boat. It has been taken to the Iraq Museum in Baghdad with the goal of preserving it and eventually putting it on display. And now for something shipwreck adjacent. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has been deepening the Savannah River Channel at Savannah Harbor, and as part of that process, they have pulled 12 Revolutionary War-era cannons up from the floor. That's in addition to three that were previously hauled up about a year ago. At first, it was believed that these three cannons might have been from the HMS Rose, which the British scuttled to try to block the Savannah River Channel during the Revolutionary War. But but research later confirmed that the Rose had been sunk further upstream and that its cannons had been removed first. So work is still ongoing to try to match these particular cannons to any specific wreck. And on one last sort of random thing to end on, an international interdisciplinary team has analyzed a pair of 3,000-year-old trousers found in China's Tarim Basin. These were found on a naturally mummified body known as the Turfan Man, and they have been described as the world's oldest pants. It turns out that a lot went into making them. Making these pants required three different weaving techniques, one that reinforced the knees, another that created a thicker waistband, and a third that gave the crotch and seat some stretch. The pants are also decorative, covered in zigzags, stripes, and geometric patterns. All this together suggests that the weavers who were dressing the Turfan Man had far-reaching connections through nomadic herders and traders. Similar weaving and decorative patterns are found in far-flung parts of Asia at about the same time. Yeah, if you're imagining that that long ago, people's pants would involve just, like, hacking something together. (laughs) No. These look like they were very functional very specifically designed to be well-suited to somebody who rode on a horse a lot of the time. Uh, pretty cool. They are cool. It's I, um, I think of them very similar to the way you see, like, sometimes they're called tech pants or skate pants today, where it's like there'll be a little extra quilting in areas where you may hit things or, like... Mm-hmm. I think this would be a great, um, fun and weird project if you wanted to do a little historical stitching. Make your yeah. own version of Turf and Man's Pants. Sounds good to me. It's on my list. <laughs> uh, so that's our unearthed for this quarter of the year. We will be back toward the summertime with some more. In the meantime, I have some listener mail. Uh, It's from Jenna. It's about an episode that Holly researched, but it's about something that I said, so it sort of (laughs) is a bridge. Uh, Jenna wrote, Hello, Tracy and Holly. I recently wrote about Caesar salad, and I have another story that will hopefully give you a chuckle. Like many, I also read Tess of the Durbervilles in my sophomore high school class. 
Every person in the class read it and discussed it, but we hated it so much and were apparently convincing enough in our opinions that the teacher removed it from the curriculum for the next year. I don't remember much about it, except that I disliked it and thought Tess was a flat, uninteresting character. Hopefully, Tracy isn't too jealous of our success. Here's more pics of my cats because they're the best, and I know how much you guys love Mini Panthers best, Jenna. P.S. I was just at Disney World and thought of you guys, especially Holly, while on the Haunted Mansion. Till death do us part. Um, Thank you, Jenna, for this. The subject line of this email was Tess of the Dunkervilles, which made me laugh a lot. <laughs> um, and also, man, I I love that this class was able to convince a, a teacher to make a change to the curriculum because I still am like, what what was I supposed to get out of reading Tess of the Durbervilles in the 10th grade that could not have been achieved by reading something that maybe felt more relevant to a 10th grader in Northwest North Carolina in 1990 or whatever year that was. Uh, so anyway, thanks so much for this. And thank you for the cat pictures. I I just sort of feel like anytime somebody sends us pictures of their, um, of their black cats, their cats and my cats are friends. <laughs> um, I just like mentally in my in my head my cats are friends with all other black cats so <laughs> thank you for that um, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com uh, you can also follow us on social media we're uh, at missed in history that's where you'll find, a, find us on Facebook Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.